is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of FedWatch. My name is Anson Linder. This is the macro podcast for Bitcoiners. And no CK again this week. He is still on a much-deserved break. We have a very fun topic to talk about. Of course, Davos is on the tip of everybody's tongue. They just ended the last segment talking about Davos. We're going to dive into a little bit of the history of Davos today. Um, we did talk about this topic last week with... Tom Luongo. Great, great interview. If you guys go back and check that out. Uh, don't forget, we also have an audio feed and I put a companion post uh, so on Bitcoin Magazine. So if you uh, miss the charts or whatever, and you're just listening to audio, you can always go to Bitcoin Magazine and look that up and, and see all the charts on the companion post. But uh, great interview. Go check that out. He brought up Davos. Uh, his term for Davos is kind of like a uh, globalists. I used to call them the globalists that met at Davos, but he calls them Davos man. And uh, anyway, so that's a week by week kind of build up into this conversation on the history of Davos. Um, in my opinion, this week has been a little bit slow on macro um, and a little bit slow on Bitcoin. But Chris and Q guys, what are the biggest topics you see out there uh, that Bitcoin magazine has covered in the live streams since I was last on? Can you guys uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it looks like uh, I'll, I'll hop in here real quick. I mean, uh, we've been talking about, obviously, uh, Davos starting up this week. It, we were also saying the counterpoint that the Oslo Freedom Forum is going on right now in conjunction to Oslo, Norway. We've actually been live streaming all the Bitcoin segments, but there's much, much more talking about people escaping authoritarian governments. Uh, I know photo... Um, Photo Diop, I think I pronounced his name wrong, but him and Jack Mallers had a great talk this morning talking about uh, he comes from a country in Africa that is under French rule, basically, or basically the French monetary system. So obviously, uh, I don't want to butcher which nation he's from, but obviously uh, their currency, they don't own their own currency, much like many nations are either dollarized or they use the European franc, uh, the European the euro dollar or the uh, French currency. So basically they're under the authoritarian thumb, uh, thumb of the ECB and the French banks. So uh, just kind of, you know, it gives a good counterpoint that Davos is trying, you know, central bank digital currencies and cryptocurrency while the Oslo Freedom Forum is talking about Bitcoin, empowering the individuals and escaping authoritarian rule. So that's basically what we've been covering the last couple of days. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, WEF and Davos, they really are the antithesis of Bitcoin, right? And it's interesting that they uh, El Salvador just had that assembly going on down there in El Salvador uh, last week. And I wrote about that on my newsletter last Friday about how it is. it was just, uh, I don't know if they planned that, if Bukele actually planned that it would be the week prior to Davos or not, or if it was just some sort of fate that it happened like that. But uh, excellent contrast between what's going on in El Salvador and what's going on in Davos this week. But okay, let's uh, jump right into this. This will be kind of the first in a series of historical lookbacks at, at things because we do every once in a while have these slower weeks where not much is going on in Bitcoin and not much is going on in macro. Uh, you know, no Fed policy talk or nothing going on with the ECB. So we do sometimes have these weeks like this. And I thought it would be a great use of time to look at international organizations and institutions like the IMF, the WEF, maybe the ECB, 
uh, and the Fed even, and look at the history of, of these institutions. I think that would be really good for people out there. But this one, Davos, being that they're meeting this week, I said, hey, let's just jump into the Davos thing. So what is the World Economic Forum? They started back in 1971. Klaus Schwab was a business professor in Geneva, and he wanted to start this organization that was talking about stakeholder theory. That was his kind of pet theory back then. Um, and every year they have a meeting in Davos, but it wasn't originally called the Davos meeting. It was called, uh, the world, sorry, European management symposium. And they weren't even called the world economic forum. They were called the European management forum back until the mid eighties when they became known as the world economic forum. So they meet every year from top leaders around the world and they just discuss they don't really have any huge milestones or policies that they enact like a, a government would, uh, but they do have a few claims to fame over the five decades that they've been meeting. One is they, they claim to have played a pivotal role in uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, German reunification. In 87, they claim to have played a big role in the Tur Turkey and Greece avoiding a war back in 1987. And I think that their kind of big highlight of all of their accomplishments over the decades was a handshake between Nelson Mandela and the white leader in South Africa uh, back in 1992 that kind of ended apartheid or was a symbol of ending of apartheid in South Africa. So all of those decades, and they just have a few things to show for it. So let's, uh, can we pull up slide number one? All right. Uh, so slide number one is just taking a look at their website, you can see their meeting is going on right now and you can go and check out some of their live stuff. I haven't done this. I usually do like to go and watch kind of the enemy and see what the enemy is saying and doing, but I probably won't watch anything live. I'll just wait for the highlights of this. But then if you go to slide two, this is what they've been up to for five decades. So like I said, they haven't had any like big policy change uh, things that have changed the world, but they have done this young global leaders group. And this is where they have young leaders from around the world. I think they do about a hundred people a year or so. Um, and they bring them in and they indoctrinate them in globalism and Marxism and uh, environmentalism and all of these things. Uh, they have in the history of this group, they have uh, now graduated uh, 1400 people. And some of those people are located in offices as high as prime minister and presidents in different countries. They're also very high up in business, environmental activism in uh, different positions within governments all around the world. Uh, so th these, these people that this is what they've been doing over the years. Now, this really came to the forefront during COVID because, uh, COVID was a very coordinated management of this global pandemic down to the language used, right? So, uh, and the experts that were listened to and the language used, I mean, this was a massively coordinated global effort. Um, and people were wondering, you know, how can they coordinate all this stuff from mask mandates to travel mandates to uh, lockdowns um, to vaccine passports and everything? I mean, everything seemed to be coordinated. And that's when they, people really started talking about these young global leaders and how they have infiltrated a lot of the governments and large corporations in our world. 
Also during that time um, in 2020, during the pandemic, uh, Klaus Schwab released The Great Reset. And this was a book saying that uh, the COVID-19 gave a great opportunity to remake the world, to reset capitalism in our own image or in our uh, the image that we want it to be in. So very Marxian sound to it, right? With a, a, Instead of saying revolution or a workers' revolution, they say the great reset. It still has the same kind of feeling to it. And a planned economy, a planned managed economy, uh, that is, those are some of the buzzwords that you'll hear from the Great Reset. Um, also, other topics that they talk about all the time, environmentalism, coordinated globalism or global policies. They like to coordinate everything uh, down to the pollution, you know, uh, emission standards, um, everything. They also have this like ruling managerial class that they have experts within uh, that they listen to and they have like the presidents and the, these people that are in high positions, they will only listen to people within this managerial class. So it's a very uh, uh, socialist idea of managing the commanding heights of the economy. Um, they also talk a lot about population, population control, sustainable population, um, and equal outcomes. So bottom line, the WEF is a very Marxist organization that has indoctrinated all of these world leaders into this kind of Marxist uh, ideology about environment and uh, globalism. So I wanted to also dig a little bit deeper into Klaus Schwab. So if you go to slide number four there, please. Klaus Schwab is of course, the founder of the WEF and his kind of ideological father was this uh, Father Camara. Um, he was a Catholic priest down in Argentina, I believe, first. Then they kicked him out of Argentina for having these Marxist ideas, trying to corrupt the youth, uh, called it liberation theology. And then he went to Brazil. They kicked him out of Brazil for the same reasons. And he went to Chile. So he went all around South America preaching this Marxist uh Marxist ideology. Well, he was a direct influence on Klaus Schwab. Um, Klaus Schwab had him speak in 1974. So just, I think it was a second symposium back even before it was called the WEF, it was called the European uh, Management Forum. And so Father Kamara spoke back then. And it was kind of weird because, you know, it was all of these kind of high up business people, high up world leaders, and then you bring in this priest to talk. And that just wasn't really normal. But uh, Kamara was the first of many priests to speak at early World Economic Forum uh, meetings. But there's also a connection here between uh, Pope Francis and also other uh, revolutionary Marxist people like this Paolo Fieri that is very famous in the education circles. He's has written a book that's the third most cited book in the social sciences. So he's a revolutionary Marxist and they all trace their uh, kind of ideological uh, mentorship back to this Father Kamara in South America. So that just ties all into where this I believe that the WEF is a branch of a Marxist kind of trilogy of education, religion, and business. Um, and the World Economic Forum is the business end of things. All right, let's go to the next slide. 
Okay, so this is the WEF has talked about Bitcoin several times throughout the years. They don't really mention it too much, but you can see this is just a, a tweet that I found back in 2018 on the left here. Uh, hidden costs of Bitcoin, and they talk about proof of work versus proof of stake. They consistently attack proof of work because of obviously their environmental environmentalism is a huge key pillar of their framework. But then just this last year, this famous tweet came out where they were trying to talk about, oh, we can make Bitcoin proof of stake and it will save 99.9% .9 of the carbon footprint. And look, the Bitcoin will... Uh, it says Bitcoin alone could help push global warming above two degrees Celsius. So they're attacking Bitcoin on this environmentalist stance. But as they're attacking Bitcoin, they're also promoting CBDCs and stablecoins. So if you can go to the next slide, this is the back in November of 2021, they came out with a series of white papers that talked about, they called it digital currency, but really they talked about stable coins. And I wanted to read a little segment of this here. So the Digital Currency Governance Consortium, DCGC, convenes more than 85 organizations from the public sector, private sector, civil society, and academia to provide a global perspective towards addressing high priority policy and governance issues surrounding new forms of digital currency. DCGC, has focused its initial phase of work on CBDC and price-stabilized cryptocurrencies referred to as stablecoins. So you can see that they are big into uh, stablecoins and CBDCs, just like we see at the ECB, the IMF, they all sound the same, that they're going for uh, CBDCs. I, I don't have a slide here for this, but I wanted to read an excerpt from an article I found on this morning that came out of Davos, and it was from a few people here. First off, the Davos meeting, it's interesting that they are kind of being overwhelmed by a presence of the Bitcoin industry there. So I'll just quote from this article and I'll link it down in the show notes. It's from a rival publication, so I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, talk about <laughs> my name here. But crypto uh, Bitcoin advocates opened the parties up on Sunday with Bitcoin pizza stalls and blockchain pavilions with flashy banners lining the the famed promenade. So I guess they have a promenade in front of the main hotel that they do the Davos stuff in. And it was all full of Bitcoin and Bitcoin related booths and things just probably very similar to uh, the Bitcoin conference down in Miami there. Let's see, Jeremy Allaire, he is the CEO of Circle. And I call him an enemy of Bitcoin because he talked about Bitcoin failing years ago. Then he came back after a few years and started USDC, you know, the stablecoin from Circle. And also Brad Garlinghouse, he's the CEO of Ripple, who is also an enemy of Bitcoin and in a big fight with the SEC right now. But they were on a panel together and they discussed uh, remittances at the conference. So not only what I'm trying to set up is here, here is not only is Bitcoin really influential outside the people side of this conference, you know, the outside part, but also it is being talked about heavily on the inside. Continuing down here, a panel featuring NASDAQ CEO, Adina Friedman, PayPal CEO, Dan Shulman, U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, and economist Jason Furman, purportedly focused on the future of the U.S. economy, continued the discussion on Bitcoin. 
quote, for a lot of countries around the world, digital central bank currencies, CBDCs, might make sense. I don't think the United States needs to do them, said Furman, an uh, economics professor at Harvard University. Toomey mentioned a bill that he introduced to regulate stablecoins, asking about the role of a CBDC in a world where private stablecoins flourish. Quote, I think we ought to have a framework that allows privately issued stablecoins to thrive in a rational framework. And that, and if that happens, I'm not sure how much we need a digital dollar, he said. So that's that about wraps up this article. But I wanted to make sure that I pointed out that not only are they talking about it inside or sorry, outside, but they're talking about it inside. It's really taking over the conversation there at Davos. We'll, we'll probably hear a lot more about CBDCs this week out, out of Davos. We might even see some attack ads uh, from the World Economic Forum against Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. But it's definitely on the forefront of everyone's minds. So. That is all I have on the history of the World Economic Forum and the current goings on there. Uh, Chris, do you have any comments, questions, concerns? No, I think you did a good job summing it up. That's, you know, I guess obviously they're going to start pushing central bank digital currencies, or at least that's what we're predicting. I think they're definitely going to push the climate crisis and stuff. But I guess with everything being so uncertain uh, from an economic and macro landscape background, like Obviously, people don't really care outside of their bubble, whether it's their home, their community, their society. Like, do you? And I don't know if central bank digital currencies are ready outside of China. I guess, how do you think that they are going to try and like uh, leech onto the minds of the everyday person, if you'd call it? Uh, or like, it seems like we're on the economic collapse, and CBDCs aren't ready to like give people free money. Is basically what I'm getting at. So, what what do you think yeah. they're going to do over these next two years or so to try and get in the forefront of people's minds? Well, I, I think, yes, in China, they do have the CBDC that is still a pilot program. I don't, I, they haven't rolled it out everywhere, but um, they're doing a pilot program with like a couple hundred million people, which is pretty much a whole country. But um, there's also other ones like Barbados has their own uh, CBDC that they've come out with. Other countries, I think, are have come out with or experimenting, but they're very minor, minor economies. I think what this uh, World Economic Forum, uh, Davos crowd, uh, will work through the ECB. I mean, that's their home turf. So I think they're going to work through the ECB and perhaps uh, give people, you know, handouts. So I, I, I personally believe that the European economy is in dire straits, like they're in an existential crisis with, right now with the energy crisis, the food crisis. Uh, they have countries that are maybe wanting to leave the European Union, like uh, Hungary. Uh, there, there's just a lot of rise of anti-EU uh, sentiment out there in Europe. So they're, they're kind of uh, at a crossroad. So maybe they will come out with the ECB and say, hey, we will give you guys some sort of UBI with this CBDC. And that might maybe placate the masses uh, because without the EU, you know, there would be no ECB. And yeah, that's what I kind of think. Yeah, that's the thing. I guess my, my logic is like, it's kind of always like, what have you done for me lately? And I think things are going to break before they have a CBDC ready. I, I think to your point, like people are going to be desperate for handouts, whether that's the form of UBI that like kind of basically like the stimulus checks that went out as the pandemic was beginning, or, you know, if in the future, in a few years time, they're going to want CBDCs. I, I guess Ansel, I'd love your thoughts on the risks of CBDCs 
because I know many Bitcoiners believe that once that ushers out into the world, that just proves the use case for Bitcoin, which I agree. But I think there's the counterpoint that we kind of miss as Bitcoiners, that people are going to be so desperate for money, they're going to take the money. And even if they try and use that to then go buy Bitcoin, that's basically like an ultimate KYC that obviously many exchanges do KYC, but it it forces it even more so. You see what I'm getting at? It's very different than if you're mining your own Bitcoin, you're getting non-KYC Bitcoin. If you're doing peer-to-peer Bitcoin to like Bitcoin wallet to Bitcoin wallet. But if someone gives you a CBDC that you have to use full KYC, I'm assuming to get and to receive, and then you go and buy Bitcoin, they immediately have how much Bitcoin you have, what exchange you bought it on, and then they're going to be tracking that address pretty religiously, I would assume. So I guess, what are your thoughts on, on my uh, ideas? You want to break them apart? Do you think that's oh, yeah. how it's going to be? Yeah, that, that, there's a lot there. So first off, um, on what CBDCs will be and what they mean for money, I think that they are a brand new type of money. They are not like the traditional, what we know of as government issued banknotes or um, even what we know of as the euro, these digital dollars or digital euros or digital dollars that exist in your bank account. Um, I think they give the ability to print at will, you know, and that old saying of if you can inflate it, you will inflate. So if you can print money, you will print money. Uh, There has been some kind of restraint on that in normal, the normal um, money printing process because of the way that, you know, money is printed in the process of a loan and those loans need to be paid back to make the, make the whole system work. So that puts a natural limit on how much money can be printed. But with a CBDC, that limit is completely taken away. You know, we go from a credit-based money which what we have now with the the dollar and the euro and all other currencies. Um, And we go to a strict fiat based system that is just completely dependent on the whims of the control, whoever controls it. Um, So I don't, I, I, and I do think that they know this because the fed has come out with several uh, speeches, quarrels, Randall quarrels. He was the vice president of the fed until uh, just a few months ago when he quit um, he has a speech from last year where he detailed out exactly what stable coins are. I mean, f- as if he were a Bitcoiner talking about what stable coins are, and he's making all the exact arguments in, in a very eloquent way. So I know the central bankers know this, right? Um, but they might go through with it anyway, because they, they don't want to lose their power. And they think this is a good way to print money. Um, now, as for the KYC, Powell has said that any digital dollar would need to be extremely private, you know, would have to have privacy baked in. But I don't think that the U.S. is going to do a digital CBDC for the dollar. I think they're just going to uh, regulate the digital dollars out there already with Tether and U- uh, USDC and and all those. So I think they're just going to regulate those. They're not going to have a digital dollar And then it will be kind of similar to whatever rules you have with banking and your credit cards. So the the use of Tether in the future is is going to be regulated and it's going to be very similar ID to the way you use a credit card. But you'll always be able to buy Bitcoin anonymously through barter, you know, over the counter. You can do it over the counter uh, just like you buy, you could buy it today. You'll always be able to do that. So it might be a little bit harder to do it anonymously in the future, but 
uh, I, I don't think it's going to be a huge difference. Does that cover most of those questions? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think there's one more thing I was going to ask before, I guess, either Q or Alex or P hop in here. So obviously the Fed is in full combat inflation mode, obviously with the two hikes saying that they're probably going to hike another 50 basis points, saying that 75 basis points is off the table. That remains to be seen whether they do that or not. But we're already seeing the cracks in the economy. What I mean by that is Twitter is in a hiring freeze, potentially layoffs. I know that's you know mixed in with the news of Elon potentially buying it. Meta has said that they've implemented a hiring freeze, as well as Snapchat is slowing their hiring process. A lot of these big tech companies, as well as many other big corporations, are seeing their stocks down, record lows, NASDAQs down, S&Ps down, obviously Bitcoin, cryptocurrency industries down. The bonds look like it's inversing. While I said all of that all at once, obviously the Fed has two things that they're always trying to combat. One is inflation, or they set a target of 2% inflation year over year. Obviously, we're running well hot of that. We as Bitcoiners say it's higher than the 8.3% it's showing right now, but that's what they, their latest numbers are showing based on CPI. What happens, what, like we're saying their backs up against the wall. What if we see the inversion of while they're trying to fight inflation, raising interest rates, making the cost of capital more expensive, that all of a sudden we see layoffs, we see people losing jobs. You know, they're kind of a dual mandate of not only are they looking at 2% inflation as their normal target, but what about if we see mass layoffs and we go into a full-blown recession and ultimately a depression of people losing their jobs and not having enough work out there in order to combat this? I guess, what, what do you think that their thoughts would they do? Would they unravel the, the basis point hikes? Do they peg it back to zero? Uh, I guess, what are your thoughts there, Ansel? Well, first off, I mean, yeah, that this is exactly what the Fed's dealing with. They're sitting around their uh, FOMC table and they're asking each other these same sort of things. Like, what if we do this? What will happen here? Um, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, the economy is slowing down. I think we are in recession. The first quarter was already a negative GDP print. I think the second quarter is going to be even more negative. Uh, on top of what you said there about all those big companies, I saw Amazon is trying to unload like a million square feet of well, uh, warehouse space. So, I mean, everybody is feeling the pinch, right? Feeling the hurt. And we're, we're going to hear more about stagflation uh, coming up in the next few months. But, of course, I am in the deflationary camp. And I think that if you look at the April CPI, uh, the month over month was the lowest in like 18 months. And that was 0.3% from March to April. I mean, that is only a 3.6% annualized CPI print. If you take month over month and you annualize that. So I think the, the, from April to May, you know, if it stays down there at 0.3 or 0.4% month over month, it's going to come down drastically. And I think that we will return to a three or 4% inflation rate before people have the ability to really talk about stagflation too much. So the Fed is going to come into like probably July, June and July and see, okay, we've, we've raised now three times and the CPI is showing like it's starting to come down and there's real big signs of recession coming. So what do they do? That's why I think that they are going to pause. They don't have to cut as if they just pause their rate hikes, that will be seen as extremely accommodative and extremely uh, bullish for risk assets. If they just pause and they say, we're going to pause, we're going to wait till September and we're going to reevaluate then, right? That's going to be extremely bullish. What they do after that, 
Maybe they have one or two more after that, but uh, I don't think they can hike very far. It's eventually going to turn over. And within like Tom Luongo last week, he was like, no, no, they're serious. They're going to raise it to seven, 8% and they're going to crash everything. I, I don't buy that. I think that they are going to uh, try to play the middle road. Powell's going to try to play the middle road, appease both sides, uh, put some sort of soft landing on the economy by pausing instead of continuing to hike. So we'll see where that goes. But in two years from now, we'll be back at zero. That's my opinion. I hate to say it's funny because it it's not, but in my mind, I see almost this cartoon of Jerome Powell trying to put out some water that's spouting into his boat. And this water, the first hole was unemployment. And he goes and he covers that up. And then all of a sudden behind him, inflation started popping up. And then you bring up something that I'm in full agreement with you that we're going to get negative GDP this quarter where now fully triggering a recession. And that will then be sort of this third spigot spewing water into the boat as Powell and the team are dealing with inflation. You mentioned, Tom Longo has mentioned, and I'm kind of curious, maybe walk us through the different things that they have to consider right now when they say, hey, if we continue to raise rates, at least we'll combat inflation. We may have a negative impact on unemployment. We have a, we may have a negative impact on GDP, but maybe there's a threshold they're willing to stomach in order to combat this inflation. I'm curious your thoughts of, are they, are they gonna be so solely focused on inflation or will something as bad as a full-blown based on GDP going down two quarters in a row, we are in a full-blown recession. Let's reevaluate. Would that be something enough for Powell and the team to say, maybe just pause or maybe let's, let's reverse action, reverse course. Yeah. Well, they are guided by their dual mandate. And that is of course, that's uh, maximum employment they say maximum, not full employment, because they don't want to be pinned down on like what is full employment and whatever, but maximum employment and stable prices. Now, the 2% target is fungible or like it can move around a little bit. Uh, they never had like for many years, it wasn't 2% until it was right. And then it was just 2%, um, not symmetric. So if it was uh, over 2%, they would act, but not if it was under 2%. But then about, I think it was Yellen came in with a symmetric 2%. So that means that if it's under 2%, they'll try to get it higher. And if it's over 2%, they'll try to get it lower. But this is a policy that is just kind of a stated policy. It's not in their mandate. So they can fudge around with that. Perhaps they say, we're now we're shooting for a 2 to 3% inflation target, right? Or I think we've overshot enough. Now we're, we're going to fudge with some other of these, not, they're not technically part of the mandate. They're just like what they have stated as policy. So there are a few things that the fed can do in that regard to kind of tweak what people think of as normal. Now we have heard from the fed, a few fed uh, people in the recent weeks talking about what they think is normal. Um, Like what, if we get back to 5%, is that, normal long-term is that neutral, I guess is the term neutral uh, is 5%. Uh, Now we're hearing more and more lower targets. So they're starting to say, no, 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 I think it's 3% is the neutral rate that we should kind of uh, go for. And I'm talking about fed funds right here. Um, 
So yeah, there, there's a few different things that they can tweak that don't involve their mandate, but their mandate definitely is the thing that guides them in what their decisions that they try to make is supposed to be maximum employment and stable prices. It's not funny, but it, it is funny. Like they make up their own rules, their own mandate of maximum employ, employment, 2% inflation. Like that's their own mandate. They could just, oh, uh, you know what? This is maximum employment. Or, hey, actually, we don't really care so much about that anymore because we already reached that. Now let's get GDP on track. Or we're going to change inflation so we're not worrying about oil costs because oil is based on some outside forces no longer in our control. What, you know, oil is shooting up yet again. And I'm curious of your thoughts of what, if anything, the Fed may try to do, may try to call on Congress to do with the rising cost of oil in particular, if anything. We've seen Powell in the past call upon Congress to take action or, or pass legislation to no avail. I'm curious if, if you're expecting anything uh, in in the context of oil. Well, the price of oil is set you know, by supply and demand. And the government can come in and do things that curtail supply, like sanction one of the largest oil producers in the world. Uh, they can also close down pipelines in the largest oil producer in the world. Uh, so they can do a lot of things like that that uh, can hurt the supply side. But, uh, you know, I think we've seen the maximum extent of supply side degradation. And now we're going to see the demand fall. So if you have lower demand, right, if, if supply is falling faster than demand, then the price is going to go up. But if demand is falling faster than supply, you can actually see uh, in a deflationary environment, you can see the price of oil go down. So I'm, I'm expecting demand to fall off pretty dramatically. And this is a global demand. Um, as China, you know, realizes that they're, they are in a massive credit financial crisis uh, and Europe is entering into financial crisis, and even the U.S. now is in recession. Um, I think that you know the demand for oil is going to fall by millions of barrels a day. So I don't really expect the price of oil to go much much higher. Um, maybe make new highs above what was it like one? I think it got up to like one twenty eight or something uh, back in March. I, I think it could go a little bit higher than that, but. Uh, long term over the next one year, I think we're going to see lower oil prices than it is today. So uh, that's how I kind of look at oil is a supply and demand. Supply has been hit pretty hard and now it's demand's turn to get hit really hard. Oh, and I, I want to circle back on what the Fed is thinking. Uh, so with CPI, um, if I'm correct that CPI will start coming down over the next couple months, and we'll see maybe a 4% CPI instead of a 8% print. Um, that gives them a lot of leeway, right? Because am I, am I breaking up? Because I saw an unstable connection. Am I good? Okay. So yeah, as CPI starts coming down, that gives the Fed a lot of room to maneuver with their uh, narratives and with their talking points. And that's what I expect to happen. Um, so we'll see a lot of new things pushed out, like maybe they move the symmetric 2%. Maybe they uh, say, hey, neutral for the Fed funds is actually 2.5% uh, going forward in the future. They, they can do a lot of things uh, that they have room to do because CPI is coming down. That's the key, that CPI 
will actually come down. And that will be driven by your last question, uh, which is the oil price. So uh, supply has come down. Now demand is going to crash. Uh, the price of oil come down and that will take CPI down. And so see, everything is connected in, in, my, in my crazy theory. It's a, it's a wild time to say the least. Um, is there anything from the more, maybe I'll start with the house and then move on to the White House, but I'm curious if you're paying attention to anything out of either of those camps um, as far as any new money coming in or what they're trying to push forward uh, that may impact money supply or just general GDP and inflation. So your question is about uh, what's going on with Congress and the White House and their policies and how that's going to affect it. Oh boy. I don't, I haven't seen anything recently talking about any sort of stimulus checks, you know, new stimulus checks or new government spending, getting it out, right out into the hands of the people. And that's what really pushes prices up in the short term. You know, they're arguing about Ukraine, giving $40 billion to Ukraine. That's not really going to have any effect whatsoever on CPI. So no, I don't, I don't see anything coming out of uh, Congress or the administration. I mean, other than this oil, these oil regulations, I saw that they're trying to shut down perhaps the one of the Alaskan pipelines or something like that, you know, new drilling leases, perhaps. Oh, oh, I did see that, um, you know, the oil companies are suing the federal government for blocking their leases. And if, if that goes through, I think they already passed the first step. And the the judge has said, you can't deny these oil leases to these companies. Um, But then of course, the government can appeal and appeal and appeal and push off. But if that ever comes to a resolution, say in the next six months, uh, where they can open up new lands, that is also going to have a dramatic effect on the price uh, of oil and hence then CPI. So uh, that's kind of maybe what I'm watching. I don't really watch too much what's coming out of there, uh, out of Washington, all that closely. I I, uh, think more about the Federal Reserve and, you know, monetary policy stuff. Ansel, I got something to add to that real quick. So if you just put yourself in the shoes of being on the board of an oil company, let's just say Exxon, BP, you know, take your pick. Why? I mean, obviously they want to fight to have the ability to open up more wells, but why would you? Like with prices going up, you can keep your supply or the amount that you're putting onto the market the same. And basically demand is going through the roof because things are opening back up and you're basically making a killing. Obviously uh, things are getting more expensive, but it's more beneficial to the energy producers themselves. Uh, I know just from my experience, like even if they win it, let's just say six months to a year, you're going to still have uh, an administration that I assume would be more hostile to them. So it's almost like a net negative for them to even open up more oil wells. I don't know what your thoughts on that, Ansel. Yeah, well, um, before I answer that, I just uh, want to detail out that it's a long process to open up these oil wells. And I'm, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts about oil and about macro and stuff. And uh, it takes months. And I did live in Oklahoma for eight years of my life. And I, I had friends in the oil industry, you know, that they would work on the oil rigs out in, uh, in the country. And it takes years or it takes months to recruit the, the team to go out into the field and work at that well. Plus it takes months to get the financing together to actually start drilling. And so it's a, it's a multi-month process, six to 12 months, probably to get a new rig up and running. Um, and so you're, you're thinking about doing that by a hundred or 200 times to get 200 new wells opened up. Um, it takes a lot of time to do that. 
it's not like you can just, oh, the oil price went up or down and we can now turn up the oil spigot, but the price of oil will react. So if we, if they open up new leases, you know, that they'll try to price that in to the market. And that's why oil prices will fall. And then supply will come back online after about a year's time. So that's kind of how I'm seeing it work. Now, why would they want to open up new rigs if they're enjoying this high oil price? Well, there's two things here. One is just plain competition. So these people want to grab a little bit of market share. You know, why wouldn't, uh, if my competitor is not doing that, well, I'm going to do that because I'm going to make money. I mean, you're making that marginal difference. Your marginal revenue is over your marginal cost, right? So you can still, you're still making profit and you can grab market share. Another thing is demand destruction. So if you let it go too far, right, you're going to actually hurt your customer. And now your customer is going to be in dire straits or worse shape, and they're not going to be able to afford as much of your product in the future. So you have those two things, uh, competition uh, for market share and demand destruction. You have to be careful that you're not hurting your customer because you want that customer to be a repeat customer, right? Um, and if you milk them for all they're worth today, they're not going to be able to come back tomorrow. And so that, that's how I'd answer that question. And so I'm curious, you know, you put a really long time horizon of, of two years until we get back down to zero. And I'm curious what you think maybe the highs we can expect to see the Fed reach. We've seen some numbers get thrown around. Tom Longo threw something as high as seven. Um, I believe it was Stan, Stanley Drunken Miller said that they can't go above 4%. Like they just, like it's not feasible based on the debt and the payments on those on that money. So I'm curious if you have sort of a threshold or a max uh, that you're anticipating. All right. Um I, I don't know. I think they will pause after the next hike. So that would be a range of 1.25% to 1.5%. Um, and then after that, perhaps by the end of the year, they could get one more or even two more 25 basis point hikes in perhaps. Uh, and so that would bring it up to the high side of the range to 2%. And I think that's probably as far as they can go um, if they get there. I don't know if they can, but you know, I see global recession coming. I mean, it's, if they hike, if they, if they continue hiking like this uh, up to 7%, they're going to be exposed, I believe. Cause so, you know, I don't believe that the rate hikes do anything. They, they just follow what the market does. Uh, so the rates are going to get there before the fed moves. And if the five year starts coming down, we already see the 10 year um, starting to come down. It, it, I think it was 2.8%. Today, if the five-year comes down to below 2%, the Fed funds rate is not getting over 2%. So we can kind of look at those, those interest rates of the treasuries, the yields, and see uh, where the Fed is, is going. But yeah, I think theoretical maximum of 2%, but they might even stop at 1.5%. I'm curious if you, like, what... Obviously, we would, I think, all do a lot of things differently than what the Fed is currently doing. But in the current scenario right now, what would you feel most comfortable doing? Would you, would you, if you had the power to just take it back down to zero, take us back down to zero, would you be raising rates right now? How would you be approaching this situation? If I were Jerome Powell, <laughs> I would, I mean, so my, my 
understanding of the way the Fed works is it, it works by narratives, right? And so you have to try to build up the economy. You have to try to build up that economy. And yeah, <laughs> Chris said retire. Uh, well, that's what Ron Paul said he would always do if he got elected president is the second day he would retire or something like that. The whole driving thing is the narrative. And so you have to build this narrative up uh, to be positive. I, I don't know. I, that's a very good question. I would probably retire or I would uh, start trading on insider trading knowledge. No, I'm kidding. I, I was about to say, what do you mean start trading on insider trading knowledge? Um, and so give everyone a, a reminder on how they can subscribe to Bitcoin and markets and where else you have all the all the stuff you're working on coming out. Yeah. Thanks for once again, doing these live streams, guys, this is amazing. I'm su super glad that I'm part of this. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. I recently passed 20,000 uh, followers. So that's pretty exciting. And on my website, bitcoinandmarkets.com, I do multiple posts a week, including another podcast and a free weekly newsletter. So go subscribe to at least the free tier over on bitcoinandmarkets.com. And that's all I got, guys. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ansel. Thank you, everyone. Stick around through this commercial break, and then we're going to have news and notes. And remember, use promo code FOMO. Get 10% off of everything at the Bitcoin Magazine store, including the Bitcoin uh, Pizza Day shirts, which are going to be retired in about 40 minutes. So if you did not get your Bitcoin Pizza Day shirt, be sure to snag that before we take that off the store.